near your friend. We thank you for be seated. <clears throat> we may distinguish three broad categories of celebration. The first type of celebration is epitomized on weekends at many university campuses across the land. This is the drunken party of co-ed celebrating. Who knows what they're celebrating? Maybe surviving another week of class is about all that's needed. It really doesn't matter. It's just a grab for fleshly pleasures fueled by alcohol, hormones, and peer pressure. Such celebrations typically end in some sort of pain. They end in guilt, in regret, certainly in emptiness. Living in a city known for such celebrations, the Apostle Paul exhorted the Roman believers, let us walk properly, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, but... In contrast, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The second type of celebration is the kind that recognizes some form of human achievement. It might be a birthday or a graduation party. It might be a corporation awards a large grant to a nonprofit. And so there's a celebration, there's a recognition. Or it might be the never-ending high school awards banquet where all clap and cheer and pretend that they really want to be there and really can't wait to get home. But whatever it is, it's, these are important times. These celebrations are necessary recognitions of accomplishment. They're expressions of appreciation to people that have been involved in whatever it is. They have their place. They bolster the fabric of the community. But they are typically driven more by duty than delight, particularly as we move outside of our own family celebrations. But there is here in this place today a third kind of celebration. There is the celebration, the category in which God's people gather to celebrate what God has done, what He has accomplished in salvation for our everlasting good. God Himself institutes this gathering. He institutes such observances for the spiritual maturity and for the joy of His people. And joy is much the goal. It may be a different kind of joy, but it is a deep-seated and true joy, a lasting joy as we gather to consider what He's done. Let me pick that apart. God institutes these celebrations. As we survey the Bible through the ages... The, the vibrancy of God's people seldom hinges on their innovations in worship. The joy is the goal. The vibrancy of God's people never rests on dutiful ritual observance. Putting it together, one of the clearest demonstrations of spiritual vibrancy among God's people is when God-given patterns of worship are observed with fresh delight. So it would say to us as we gather around this table here today, our vibrancy as a church 
who you are as a follower of Jesus Christ is tested by the affections for Christ that attend this ritual observance. Our thoughts are steered in this direction by the closing paragraph of Ezra chapter 6. I invite you to turn there in your Bible of Ezra 6 to locate that passage of Scripture Our reading of this paragraph needs to be supported by a healthy knowledge of the book of Ezra to this point, and I realize we have some who are visiting family today and haven't been through this series in the book of Ezra. It's been a fascinating journey for us as we continue to tie ourselves to the history of God's people in the past. But let me, for all of our sakes and for good reason, bring the book to a a point of closure at this place in the journey through Ezra. As we think on that, these first six chapters, we need to bring to this end of chapter six a sense of the text of Ezra itself. I'd like you to look just to, as you set your eye there on chapter six and chapter seven, what does not meet the eye is that 58 years separate the events in chapter six from the events recorded in chapter seven. So there's a, good, there's a section that comes to a natural end here. There is further evidence that chapter 6, verses 19 through 22, are intended to be a fitting conclusion to the first six chapters. I haven't made much of this in our series through Ezra, but let me state it here. What we haven't noticed, of course, as English readers, is that chapter 4, verse 8 through chapter 6, verse 18, is in the Aramaic language. We have a translation of the Aramaic. Now, if you know anything about the Bible and its original writing, you know the Old Testament is largely in Hebrew. But here we have an Aramaic section that comes to an end at verse 18, where we ended last week. The author in this section is drawing heavily on Aramaic texts, and so appears to write in Aramaic for that reason. But at 6.19, we have a return to biblical Hebrew. In this way, chapter, nine, or chapter 6, verses 19 through 22, narrows the focus from Israel's relationship to Persian kings and Persian documents and Persian policies and Persian governance to her relationship with Yahweh Himself. It's fascinating to see this as we move to Hebrew now. It's almost like we're circled around the campfire talking about in-house stuff. As we come to these last verses of chapter 6, we need to also bring with us to this concluding first half of the book the challenges that the exiles have endured. For those of us that have been through this series, this becomes very clear to us. We already bring that with us, but just thinking of it again, the choice to leave the relative ease in Babylon and to follow Cyrus's decree journeying back to the promised land, that is not an easy proposition in these days. Once in the land, the exiles faced serious financial and agricultural challenges. They had to build their own homes. They had to build the economy, and it was a struggle. 
Along the way, they faced famine as well that made it, made it even harder. And then there were the adversaries. There were those that came along and caused all kinds of trouble. They rose up to oppose the temple's reconstruction. The opposition was so harsh that the temple project did not move forward for 16 years. Then, as soon as the project was reinstituted and the building began again, the governor demanded proof of Israel's authorization to build. And this put fear in the hearts again that maybe everything would come to a stop. As this sixth chapter comes to a close, we must understand that the returned exiles have faced nearly a quarter century of formidable challenges. It's not been easy to get to this place in their story. But we know as well, as we know life as God's people, that there are blessings as well. We consider the challenges that they endured. We consider the blessings that they've received. Also, God moves the heart of the Persian king Cyrus to completely reverse Babylonian policy the policy of exile, and he frees the Israelites to go back to the promised land. The two most significant waves of persecution as they're back in the land, how do they end? They end with a very pointed, specific declaration of the authority of the Israelites to build the temple. So as much trouble as they face, it all ended very well establishing their right to continue to worship and build. And now, 70 years after the first temple was destroyed on Mount Zion, we have a second temple completed. The work has been done. God has blessed under the preaching of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. The job has been accomplished. The temple would stand for nearly 600 years. This temple in some form or another on this site. For 600 years. God had done great things for His name through His people. It hadn't been easy. But they'd come back to the land. They had built the altar again, and they now have built the temple. And as we continue on then in this account, transitioning to the Hebrew text, huddling around Israel and what she is doing in her relationship with God, we notice then in verse 19 that the returned exiles keep Passover. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. A clear theme shows itself throughout this text. Did you catch it? There's repetition in the text. It might not even pass for good English writing in a junior high class today because it keeps repeating a phrase. But when the Hebrew text does this, it's meant to highlight and to emphasize. And so often it uses the same word again and again. What is that word? What is that phrase? What did you see? Verse 19, the returned exiles. Verse 20, the returned 
exiles. Verse 21, the returned exiles. Even more enjoyable in the Hebrew text, sons of the exile. The children of the exile. Those who were in Babylon who have now returned. As this section comes to a close, the author stresses the truth that God's people were home. They'd returned to the promised land. They had been sent into exile, we know, because of their idolatrous lawlessness. They had succumbed to infidelity. They had abandoned God. And God disciplined His people very severely. The temple was destroyed. They had been taken to Babylon in exile. God's kingdom of priests had prostituted themselves to the other gods. And God's judgment rightly fell upon them. But now, they were the returned exiles. They were the sons of the exile. They were the children of exile. They were back in the promised land. And here, in obedience to God, Israel keeps the Passover. Remember Passover. That annual festival in which all Israel gathered to commemorate God's miraculous deliverance of the nation from Egyptian bondage. Instituted by God in the law to Moses, Israel will recognize this festival. They will keep this observance annually. Gathering at Jerusalem, ultimately, the entire nation as far as possible to remember this great deliverance. It's described. Rules are given in the book of Exodus in the book of Leviticus, and also in the book of Numbers. It's very clear Passover is central to the identity of the Israelites. And they're keeping it again. The Jews were able to observe Passover because the altar and temple had been rebuilt here on Mount Zion. And because, verse 20, the priests and Levites purified themselves. They were now ritually clean, ceremonially clean, As God had stipulated, there was a process to prepare them for sacrificing the Passover lamb. And they had gone through that ceremonial preparation to identify themselves as the priests who were able to offer these sacrifices. In verse 21, we find reference to another group as this Passover is eaten by the people of Israel who had returned, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land. They separated themselves from the people of the land. Notice what it says there at the end of verse 21. To worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So there's a separation from the people of the land to the people of God in the celebration that they are undertaking on Mount Zion. Those who joined the returned exiles may have been converts to Judaism, or they may have been a small number of Israelites whose ancestors escaped exile. At any rate, we don't know exactly who they are, but the only people who could eat the Passover meal were those who were wholly consecrated to God. There was a way in to this celebration. And all now are prepared, the Levites, the priests among the Levites, to offer the sacrifices for the people, the people there to eat this meal in commemoration of God's saving grace. 
And it's interesting that there are those who are joining them. It's been a lot of people that have been opposing them. When God's people enthusiastically serve Him, unbelievers often react with hostility. And we're going to see a lot more of that as we work our way through the book of Ezra. There's lots of hostility. But it, all, it is also the case when God's people worship Him with vibrancy, with faithfulness, there are other unbelievers who are attracted to that. And that's what seems to be happening here. Sometimes the faith of a vibrant community ignites the smoldering faith of others, or at least the interest of those that are in the darkness. And whatever is happening, whoever they are, they prepare themselves and they come to this feast and say, we want to join you. Which is amazing, because these people were a minority that was very much vulnerable in that world been said, and I think there's some truth to it, that this applies to us as a church as well. One of the evidences that a church is alive is that it's getting hit by people who don't like it, and there are other people who are unbelievers who are responding to it. When you get overbalanced one way or the other, everybody hates you, nobody has any time for you, everybody's critical, that may not always be a good thing. Now, sometimes in cases of intense persecution, there's no other way through it. But when everybody likes you, and nobody says anything negative, nobody attacks your faith, nobody dislikes your positions, you have to begin to wonder if that church is really standing with God. And so may it be a test for us. There should be in our experience, as individual members of this church and as a church at whole, those who attack us and those who are drawn to the light all at the same time. That seems to be what's happening here with Israel. There were those that opposed them, those that hated them, those that would do anything to stop this, and we'll see more of that opposition to come. But there were those who were saying, there's something happening there, and I want to be part of it. And they separated themselves from the majority, from the power brokers of the world around, and came to the minority, to the people of God, and said, we want to purify ourselves to join you in celebrating Passover. So the returned exiles observe this Passover ritual. We see in verse 22, secondly, that they also observe the festival of unleavened bread. So we've seen in this chapter the altar has been established, or in these, in these chapters the altar has been rebuilt. We see that the temple has been rebuilt, started once, finished now, and here gathered in this place, Passover reinstituted, and now uh, also unleavened bread. Verse 22, they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Remember, unleavened bread is that week-long feast that gets attached to Passover. Passover, there's some ritual that goes into it, but essentially it's a long family meal. But then unleavened bread was a week-long commemoration of how God protected Israel once they left Egypt. Once the, pa- the angel passed over the Israelites in Egypt and the, and the nation was delivered, they left Egypt and out in the wilderness did not take, have time to take leaven with them and so ate flat bread. Leaven then was ceremonially removed from their homes and not used in their bread making for this one week and they helped, it helped them remember the lack of leavening agents in the dough as they 
fled Egypt, but it helped them remember, more importantly, the protection and the grace of God. He delivers you, but he brings you all the way home. And that's what these Israelites are remembering. Think of all the trouble they faced. Think of the trials that have brought them to this place. Think of what God has done to bring them here to this temple and this commemoration. It had to be a, a warm and fulfilling time. In fact, the text makes that very clear that that's how they responded. They, they celebrated, verse 22, with joy. The effect of this celebration was to fill them with joy. And why is that? Notice the phrase in verse 22. It's crucial as we come to the end of this section. The Lord had made them joyful. Do you have that testimony in your walk with the Lord that He's made you joyful? Not something you purchase, not something you can turn on, but that God is active in your life to give you joy and gladness of heart. This is their testimony. This is their celebration as they honor the Lord's Word and follow these festivals. Now this joy is coupled here or is tied here to the turning of the heart of the king of Assyria to them. It might have caught your attention there, the king of Assyria. That's not working. And a lot of people would say the author's gotten confused here and made a horrible mistake. Uh, he's talking about the king of Persia. He's talking about Darius, who's allowed them to uh, build and to come to this festival. He's not talking about the Assyrian king. And so many people would say that the author has just made a horrible blunder. I tell you, you... you this, it's impossible that this is a blunder. There's nobody that's that dumb to be talking about Darius, the Persian king, and suddenly talk about the king of Assyria. But what we find as we look a little deeper is that the Persian kings commonly referred to themselves as the kings of empires that they conquered. And so I think rather than a really dense moment in the author's writing here, what actually is taking place is that he is drawing into the sweep of this phrase all three nations that were part of the exile and the return of the Israelites. The king of Assyria is here, Darius, because the Persians have conquered the Babylonians who conquered the Assyrians. But put it all together in the Assyrian exile, in the Babylonian exile, and now in the Persian return, there is a reference here to what God has done. He turned the heart of the king of Assyria, that is Darius in this case, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God. This Gentile king, this pagan king, has helped God's people build their house for the glory of God. The joyful Israelites recognized that God had blessed them in all of this. You remember, they did not return to the promised land on the force of their superior army. They had no army. They did not return to the promised land on the force of their superior king, they had no earthly king. But as we saw last week, God can use His king and His army, or He can use your king and your army. It doesn't matter. He's sovereign over it all. And in this case, He has a very weak nation. No king. No army. But He turns the heart of the Persian king to give them the authority to be back here and to build the temple. And so they look at this and they are gleeful. Look at what God has done. 
They celebrate with joy, with gladness when they see the Lord working in their lives. Through Cyrus, through Darius, and soon through Artaxerxes, God protects them and enables them. And so standing in this place of Passover and unleavened bread, God made them joyful. They found joy in observing the festivals God had instituted. They found joy in communing with God on His terms in the light of His saving works. And as we learn to read this section of Israel's history, we cannot fail to see the connections here to what has gone before. This is not just Passover period. This is Passover with connections and links to what has gone before, and there will be links to us to this day. But looking back in time, Passover observed in faithfulness is a theme that continues to develop through the book of 2 Chronicles and into Ezra. If you remember back to 2 Chronicles chapter 30, we have the reform under King Hezekiah. Hezekiah, that reform included the reinstitution, the re-emphasis on Passover and unleavened bread. And Hezekiah, if you remember there in chapter 30 of 2 Chronicles, he sent messengers back through Israel to invite people even in the northern kingdom to come back to Jerusalem and to celebrate Passover. And how did they respond? They mocked them. Who are you idiots thinking that we are going to go back in time to that faith? They were pagan to the core. And they just mocked them and ridiculed them. But some came. Some heard the call and came back. And within the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, there were people who gathered and Passover was celebrated again. It's a crucial point of emphasis in the reforms of King Hezekiah. It's a crucial point of emphasis as we move further in 2 Chronicles to the reforms under King Josiah. Remember when the Word of God was found, Josiah instituted again the Passover. And his faithfulness is evidenced by a temple project that leads to Passover and unleavened bread, just as with Hezekiah and just as now. You can't miss this. Remember, 2 Chronicles, this record of the kings of Israel, is intended to inspire these very people who are returning to the land. I'll tell you the, the joy. The gladness of heart for them was real. Josiah's reforms... They were gone so quickly. Hezekiah's reforms were, were discarded so quickly. But God continues to work and continues to draw His people back. And while the historians might look at Hezekiah and Josiah and say, what good did it do? You followed Passover. You observed unleavened bread for a week. But look where Israel is. They've left all that behind. What good did it do? And none of us, none of us writes the conclusion on our history. Be faithful. Be faithful as a dad, as a mom, as a church member, as a young person. Be faithful. You never know what your witness may mean 
to somebody who comes later down the line. The witness to a friend, witness to a schoolmate, to a workmate, a stand within your family, in your neighborhood, standing for Christ, we don't always see the fruits right away. But these kings who took a difficult position and returned Israel to obedience to the law of God now inspire these returned exiles on some level. And they see, I am confident, the connections with Passover and unleavened bread and a vibrant faith in God, in obedience to His Word. So as Hezekiah and Josiah, so now with these returned exiles, we find this connection with these festivals. And in the words of one commentator, Williamson, I have them recorded here because I think they capture what is taking place historically so well. He says, This community with its temple and all the attendant apparatus and personnel, the priests, the Levites, and all that's taking place, is now to be regarded as the direct continuation of what had preceded. And it is heir as well to all the privileges and responsibilities of the earlier period. In this way, the writer can urge his readers to recognize who in fact they are and to pursue their God in the full assurance of that faith. Those earlier individuals were kings with a kingdom and an army. These returned exiles, as far as this world is concerned, they're nobody. But now connecting to that line of thought and that historical trail, they know who they are. They're God's people and their hearts are filled with joy and thanksgiving. And Jesus taught us, did He not, that this table around which we are gathered now as a church today is also the direct continuation of the worship of these exiles. In some unique way, we identify with them in the keeping of Passover. As they kept Passover, so we gather at the Lord's table. Their Passover deliverance, of course, pointed forward to the final Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in our place to pay the penalty of our sins. There is a fulfillment that we recognize here, but there is also a connection then with those who have gone before, with these returned exiles in their faithfulness. And when the death of the resurrected Christ is applied by faith to those who trust His salvation, the judgment of God against our sins is satisfied. We recognize that here. And in response, we at this table remember that we have been liberated from bondage. Bondage to sin. And we stand as the forgiven children of God. Not as the perfect children of God. Not as the sinless children of God. But as those who have been forgiven by the work of Christ. The returned exiles prepared themselves to identify with God's Passover deliverance by purifying themselves from identification with false gods. And so in a similar way, we here declare our separation from the idols of this world. We're not here worshiping multiple gods. We're not here clinging to idols. We are here saying we belong to Christ alone. 
That He is the Lord, the victor, the conqueror, and the Savior. We declare that at this table. And so, by the Spirit of God and by His grace, we gather here with glad celebration. Not a place where we stand in anger and hostility against the world, but a place where we stand in gladness and joy that God has rescued us from it. And do you see the connections? We do not seek this joy and gladness in novelty. Our gladness is stimulated by a ritual observance instituted 2,000 years ago by our Savior on the night that He was betrayed. And because this table is not novel, it's not innovative, the genuineness of our affections for the Lord and His saving grace are both tested and they are deepened by this covenantal meal. If it was novel, if it was innovative, we might be drawn with gladness and joy to something that's different or to the innovator. Or to pat ourselves on the back, aren't we really interesting people who do things in a new and different way? But because there's none of that here, this has been going on in careful observance for 2,000 years. All of that is removed. And we have now the unique opportunity to come as the body of Christ made alive by word and spirit to the ancient table with joy and fresh delight. It's not in the innovation of it. It's in the consistency of it that we find a unique privilege to draw near to God. Let us revel here then in our participation in God's saving grace through the ages for all ages to come. That's what we now do. Stir up within gladness of affections for Christ and what He's done. Here we identify with Him and here is evidenced our true joy and vibrancy as His people. May we come in that spirit. May we come carefully. May we come with thanksgiving. And our Father, we ask that you'll help us to do so. We acknowledge how clearly and evidently our hearts are drawn by the gods of this world by the innovations of our own genius, self-described. But we come now as a people humbled. I trust contrite. We come as a people before you acknowledging our lust for idols and pleasures 
in dishonor of your word and your truth. We set them aside. We turn our backs upon them. We turn our backs on all false gods and we come here to say the Lord Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. That he is our Savior and our coming King. And we come to this ancient table and we recognize that here we commune with the risen Christ as we commune as the body of Christ. And I pray that in these moments that you will accomplish here what you intend by giving us this observance, by calling us to it, by directing it into the hands of your church. May we handle it wisely. May each individual decide if they are rightly prepared on the basis of what your word has taught, may each one of us come confessing our sins. May we come gathering around this table, I pray, with glad hearts. May you make us joyful and deepen us in the faith and do a unique and sanctifying work through this meal, not through any magic in the elements. But as we here identify with Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins and coming again, as we here at this ancient table nurture our hearts to love you and to serve you. We come to you humbly. We come to you dependently. We ask that you would prepare us for this and that you would deepen us and move us and sanctify us as we honor your word. Like Israel of old kept the Passover, so we keep its fulfillment in this new covenant meal. And I pray that you would help us to that end. Through our Savior we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter